Okay, good evening, everyone. Wow, it's great to see you. Okay, I'll back up. Great to see you all tonight. I'm going to pull this closer to me without knocking it over. Tricky. All right. Wow. It's great to have you all with us. For our King of Kings family members that are with us tonight, welcome again. For those that are visiting with us from abroad, from Germany, or from other places, welcome to you. I want to say a quick welcome to... All those that are joining us online tonight, I was just looking quickly at uh, some of the statistics they were giving us. We have 19 countries joining us online tonight. Some of them, I'll read them, Austria, Brazil, Canada, Denmark, England, Finland, Swami, France, Ireland, Malaysia, Norway, Philippines, Poland, Singapore, Slovakia, South Africa, Sweden, Switzerland, the United States, and Mexico. Wow. So... Welcome to you all. Uh, I want to just say a quick greeting to our senior pastor, Pastor Chad. I know he's watching. I saw a message that he's online with us tonight. And Pastor Chad, we love you. We miss you. For those of you that don't know, that our senior pastor, he's traveling on behalf of our ministry for the next few weeks. He's in the United States. He's visiting with some of our ministry partners and some of our connected uh, ministry family members in the United States while he's there and representing us as King of Kings and, and working on our behalf. So Pastor Chad, we're so grateful for what you're doing. We miss you. And on that note, today is Pastor Chad and Rebecca's 23rd wedding anniversary. So Pastor Chad and Rebecca, we love you. Happy anniversary. Hope you have a wonderful time that you get to do something special while you're there in the United States. And uh, on the heels of that, this Friday, my wife and I will actually be celebrating our 22nd wedding anniversary. Actually, you should give her the applause because I'm sure I'm the more difficult one in that process. But uh, yes, 22 years this Friday. My wife, she's up here. So. <laughs> um, we are still, we've been doing this the last few weeks, we are still in the season of counting the Omer. It's where we count 50 days from Pesach to Shavuot. We count 50 days, and today, Pastor Mike gave me reliable information, and he told me that today is day 36. Correct, Pastor Mike? I'm going to trust him. Day 36. So it means we're getting closer. So why, why do we count the Omer? It was a commandment given by God to the people of Israel, but we count because we look forward in expectation and in excitement and anticipation to Shavuot. Why? Because it was at Shavuot that God gave the Torah to the people of Israel at Sinai. And then later, for the disciples, I'm going to kick this cable over a little bit so I don't trip. Um, later, at Shavuot, the disciples gathered here in this city in Jerusalem received the promised Holy Spirit. So we look forward to Shavuot with excitement and with anticipation. That's actually a wonderful segue for me, a transition for me into what we're going to talk about tonight, excitement and anticipation, because that's really part of the, the dynamic of what we're going to be discussing tonight in our, in our time together. We are continuing, for those of you that are visiting, we're continuing on in a series that we're calling Puzzles. That Pastor Chad began about three or four weeks ago. And what, we're, what our objective here is to look at passages or concepts that are presented in the Word of God that when they're viewed on their own, they, they may not appear to fit together or, or they, they don't seem to work with other ideas or concepts. But with study and, and as Pastor Chad, with the illumination of the Holy Spirit, we can actually see how 
they fit into the greater purpose or the greater, how they connect with God's purposes and God's word overall. So on that note, again, the theme is puzzles. So I want to start with a puzzle-related question. Any puzzlers, people that like to do puzzles here? Okay, only a few. All right, great. Okay. <laughs> I've done a few with my kids. Pastor Chad, if you remember, he, he wasn't quite the fan of puzzles, but um, I've done a few with my kids. But I, I want to present to you is, have you ever been doing a, a, a large puzzle, and as you get close to the end of, of finishing the puzzle, the pieces get less, so the, the momentum picks up, because the, there's less pieces, and you start to get faster, and the momentum picks up, and you're starting to put the pieces in them. Excitement starts to, to gain, because I'm almost finished, right? And then in that moment, you're seeing this come together, and the excitement's coming together, and then you get to this last piece, and you go... Where's the last piece? There's no last piece. Where's the last piece, right? Anybody ever had that happen? And it's gone, and you're like, ah, ah, where's the, you know, and and maybe it was a picture of a face, and actually the piece that's missing is like an eye or something like that, so it's really disturbing when you look at the picture, and you you lose this momentum. What happens there is all, the momentum has come to a screeching halt. You can't move forward, and what you're looking at is an unfinished picture. You with me? Y'all feel the emotion? Good, that's my point here. Let's, let's feel the emotion of this frustration. And I believe the passage we're going to look at tonight, part of what's taking place in this passage is Yeshua trying to preempt, in a way, with his own followers, that feeling that feeling of frustration. We're going to actually be looking at a parable that's recorded in the Gospel of Luke in Luke chapter 19. So if you want to go ahead and start turning there, you can. But before we get to our text tonight, I want to to do a little setup, kind of set the stage for us at the beginning of Luke chapter 19. So what's happening? Um, For for those of you that are on the, the March of the Nations, guess what Yeshua is doing? He's walking. (laughs) Yeah, so he's walking up to Jerusalem. He's walking up to Jerusalem to come for the Passover, for his last Passover, the Passover before he will go to the cross, before he dies, before he's buried and resurrected. And that's where he's coming. And this, this story begins as he's walking through the city of Jericho on his way up to Jerusalem. And if you remember, if you've read this story, if you remember this story, he encounters a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector who was not basically someone that the people in the city really liked, okay? He was the chief tax collector, not someone they were really fond of. And what happens is, we used to sing this song in Sunday school when I was young, uh, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Wee little man was he. I mean, he was short. He was, he was of not tall stature. So he couldn't get a good view of the Lord as he's walking into the city. So he goes and he climbs a tree to get a better view of Yeshua. And the account says that Yeshua is walking and he comes to the tree where Zacchaeus is at and he stops. And he looks up at Zacchaeus. And let me read it to you. He says, Zacchaeus. Hurry down, because today I must stay at your house. Okay? And I'm sure this guy's like, what? You talking to me? Huh? Okay. So he hurries down. And the next statement in the story is it says that the people begin to complain. And here's what they say. 
He's gone to lodge with a sinful man. He's gone to have time and spend time at this guy's house with a sinful man. Now, this is not the first time Yeshua had been accused (laughs) of spending time with sinners or people that were not considered respectable. So this wasn't a new accusation from him, for him in his life. This wasn't a new accusation as you read it through the Gospels. But there was something different in this context that I want to just highlight for us for a moment. Number one, it says just before that, but when everyone saw it, when everyone saw Yeshua stop and look up and address Zacchaeus and tell him to come down because I'm coming to his house, it says they began to grumble. In this context, it doesn't give us the specifics of It was the Pharisees. It wasn't the religious leaders. In fact, it doesn't really give us any clarity as to who it was, but it was the people that were there with him. And remember, Yeshua is coming up to Jerusalem with his followers, and they're excited about this. So it's possible to assume that the people that grumbled were not his opposition, but actually the people that were with him. And why do I say that? Because what we know is Yeshua's followers were extremely excited about his entry into Jerusalem. And we're going to read it here in this passage in a minute. They were extremely excited about him. Let's get him to the city. Why? Because they believed that Yeshua would enter Jerusalem and declare himself the Messiah. That he would declare himself the rightful ruler and like fireworks would go off and the reign of the Messiah would come and the kingdom of God would be to earth and you know, okay, and this would be the moment. And in a puzzle, this is the picture they have in their mind. And it's as if it's that last piece. Yeshua, we just got to get you in the city. That's the last piece of this puzzle. And then the picture's done. You with me? So in their minds, they're saying, come on, let's get going. There's no reason for us to stay here with this sinful man Leave him to his sin and leave him to his sinful people. Come on, we've got work to do. Let's, let's go. But listen to what Yeshua declares to Zacchaeus in response to that statement that they made, that they said he's gone to lodge with a sinful man. In Luke chapter 19, it begins in verse 9. Then Yeshua said to him, speaking to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this home because he also is a son of Abraham. And listen to this. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Did you catch his point here? In other words, I take it as Yeshua saying, slow down. Take it, as I would say to my children, take a chill pill. Pause. There's no rush for us to get where you want me to go. I am here for this man, and others like him. That's why I'm here. And then he continues on in verse 11 of chapter 19. It says this, Luke 19, 11. As they were listening to this, as they were listening to Yeshua's statement to Zacchaeus, Yeshua went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was about to appear. There it is. Luke is giving us the inference that this is their expectation. This is the picture. This is the motivation that they were expecting 
the kingdom of God was about to appear. And Yeshua knew what his followers were thinking. He knew the events that they were anticipating. In fact, he had already pretty much told them clearly what was about to happen previously. Let's, let's go back, let's back up a little bit to Luke chapter 18. And I'll read it for you. Luke chapter 18 and verse 31. It says this. Then Yeshua took the 12 aside and said to them, look, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be carried out. He will be handled, handed over to the Gentiles and he will be mocked and insulted and spat upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. Yet on the third day, he will rise. Again, listen to this. But they, underst they understood none of these things. This message was hidden from them and they did not understand what he was saying. So he knew. He knew they didn't understand. He knew he didn't, they didn't get it. Even though he had clearly warned them, they didn't, they didn't understand it. It was hidden from them. And he knew the picture that was in their mind. He knew this, this energy, this momentum. Come on, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. He knew this was building, and this is what they were feeling. And I believe what he's about to say and what he's about to present here is a warning that basically would say, you are going to get frustrated if you think that the final piece of this puzzle is going to be placed down when I walk into Jerusalem. If that's your belief, then you're going to be frustrated. You're going to be looking at an incomplete picture going, Ooh! you with me? So then knowing that, he says, so let me tell you a story. <laughs> now, I don't think Yeshua ever had random story breaks like, hey guys, I'm bored, let me tell you a story. <laughs> Maybe he did, I don't know. But, but usually when we read in the Gospels, when Yeshua says, let me tell you a story, let me tell you a parable, it's because he felt it was important to explain something that was not easily understandable. And he was trying to present it in a way that they could receive it and understand it. So if Yeshua says, let me tell you a story for us, we should say, I better pay attention. And for me, I've been kind of on a, on a kick with parables lately. We've been started studying them in our home group that we have. And, and I, so again, for me, I think when Yeshua says, let me, let me tell you a story, we need to stop and pay attention. So let's, let's move on. There's our set up for tonight. Let's move on to the main text in Luke chapter 19. And I'm going to read the whole parable, and then we'll come back and look at it in a little more detail. So Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 12, says this, Therefore he said, Yeshua, a certain nobleman went to a faraway land to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. And calling 10 of his own slaves, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, do business until I come back. But his citizens detested him, and they sent a delegation after him, saying, we don't want this fellow to reign over us. And when he returned after receiving the kingdom, he called for those slaves to whom he had given the money. He wanted to know how much business they had done. Now the first appeared, saying, Master, your one mina has made ten. The master said to him, well done, good slave. Because you were faithful with so little, take charge 
over 10 cities. And also the second slave saying, came saying, your mind and master made five. Then he also said to this one, you are likewise over five cities. But another came saying, master, here is your mina. I was keeping it safe in a handkerchief for I was afraid of you because you are a strict man. You take what you did not make and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, by the words of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked slave. You knew that I am strict, taking what I did not make and reaping what I did not sow. Then why didn't you put my money in the bank so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then to the bystanders, he said, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. But they said to him, sir, he has 10 minas. I tell you, to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who doesn't have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But those hostile to me who didn't want me to reign over them, bring them here and execute them before me. <laughs> wow. Now, that concludes the parable, but let me read to you the next verse in this context of verse 28. After saying these things, Yeshua was going on ahead up to Jerusalem. Yeah, and now I, I am fairly confident that there was breaks of time between Zacchaeus and these statements and then the final statement. In, but if you read it in sequence, I think for us as modern day hearers of this, it, it, it reads, if you look at it as like a sequential list of events, it's almost as if Yeshua tells the story, drops the mic and just keeps walking. And you're like, what? What was that all about? And, and even to his hearers, I believe that this probably left them with more questions than answers. I was reading some commentaries. The Erdman's, the Erdman's commentary said this about this, this particular parable. This parable challenged the ancient reader. Its final vengeance offends the modern one. And that's a true statement. And to that point, for us today hearing this, I know it brings up a lot of questions. And so this is why I picked this because this is like puzzles. How does this fit with everything we know about who Yeshua is? How does this fit? How does this work itself? So I want to look at that a little bit more. Some questions that, at least for me, maybe you have more, but these were some questions that came to my mind. Who is this master who becomes king and, and supposed, who is it supposed to represent? Why did the king take the money from the third slave and give it to the one that already had 10? Why did the master, which became the king, bring the people who were hostile to him before him to be executed? Like, that's pretty drastic. So let me start with some insights, and we're going to break this parable down. You all with me? All right, good. I'm not leaving you behind. All right. Um, we're going to break this. I'm going to start with a few insights, and we're going to break it down a little bit. So first, I want to say this. This parable is not intended to be a description of God or Yeshua's character. He's not, Yeshua's not describing how he or God would act, but he's setting the stage with relatable characters because this parable was intended to provide a warning to the people who heard it. 
The language of this parable may sound harsh. Again, it's, it sounds very harsh to my ears. I know it sounds harsh to our modern ears, but it fits the cultural setting of the day. The, the people listening to him at that time would understand these people. You with me? So let's take a closer look at the characters. Let's start with the nobleman. Who was this nobleman? And here's what we know from what the text give us, gives us. We know that he was a nobleman who had the right to become a king. We also know that his citizens didn't like him and declared that they didn't want him to reign over them. We know that it was going to be a long journey for him to go and receive his confirmation as king. So he commanded his servants to engage in business with the monies that he gave them until he came back. And I, this, this particular word here in Greek in some translations, it says occupy, but the Greek word actually, it's a, it's a compound word that literally means gained by trading, literally engage in business until I return. So it's very specific. We also know that the money that was given to the servants was the master's. It was his money, whether he gained it through doing the work himself or other, it was his money, and he had the right and the authority to give it to these slaves for the purpose of being engaged in business. And then we know that when he returns, he's no longer just the master. He comes back as the king. So, I found something very interesting. I, I personally like history. Um, history interests me. So I, I, when I, as I was studying for this one, I, I found something very interesting in history. I thought, okay, I'll take a side turn for a moment because this may be interest someone else. If it doesn't, I'm sorry, bear with me for the next few minutes. So at this time in history, a contemporary, there was a king or a nobleman to become king. His name was Archelaus. And, and in many ways, this nobleman in this parable sounds like the story of Archelaus, the son of Herod the Great because he went to Rome in 4 BC to have his father's will confirmed so that he could be declared to be the successor and ultimately become king. And it was common at the time in the Roman Empire that when a local nobleman was to become the king of his domain or what was his inheritance, that he would go to Rome to receive the appointment and then he would return and begin his rule. So this was common. People knew this is how things worked. What is interesting is that Josephus records that Archelaus' father, Herod the Great, dies in the city of, anybody want to take a guess? Jericho. Huh. Yeshua is walking through Jericho. I found that highly suspicious and interesting. Um, when Archelaus sails to Rome for his confirmation, he is faced by a group of enemies, including his own family. Antipas' younger brother, who had been deposed or, or kicked out of his father's will days earlier, argued that his brother Archelaus merely feigned grief for his father, that he cried during the day and then was involved with great merriment during the night. So he didn't really care that his father was dead. He just kind of faked it during the day and then went and did whatever he wanted at night. And that was a bad thing. Um, 
Antipas argues that there was an attack that was carried out by Archelaus in Jerusalem, which ended in the death of 3,000 people in the temple. And he argued that it was not just a threat to the worshipers because it took place during Passover, but it was not just a threat to the worshipers in Jerusalem, but it also amounted as a threat to the Caesar himself since Archelaus acted every manner as a king before the title of king was granted by Caesar. So he was acting and doing things as a king, but he hadn't been given that confirmation by Caesar. Therefore, this was a threat to Caesar himself. In addition to his brother, there was a group of Jews who had followed close on his heels to Rome to protest to the Roman emperor because they feared of his cruelty. And they said to Augustus, we don't want this man to be our king. And as a result, Augustus divided the kingdom allotting Archelaus the greater part of the kingdom, Samaria, Judea, and Udemia, but severely limiting his powers. Archelaus was given the title of ethnarch, or ruler of an ethnic group. So, it is possible that Yeshua was taking a headline from the day, so to speak, and this character of this nobleman and pulling the story that people would understand, this character that people would understand. But regardless, with this knowledge, we can see how this story fits into the historical context, the culture. These people would have known these things. This would have been relatable, very relatable to them. In regards to this nobleman, we can also see similarities to Yeshua himself. Yeshua would need to go away for a time to receive his kingdom before he could begin his rule. There were those in his kingdom that rejected the idea of him being their king. Let's remember, though, that these similarities probably would not have been seen by his followers when he told this parable. They probably wouldn't have seen him in this image because they're thinking about Jerusalem. <laughs> they're not thinking about the negative things. So who were the 10 slaves? First, this word here in the Greek also for slave is a specific word, and it's used to give clarity to the role of these individuals as understood in the culture of that time. And we have to assume that these weren't random household slaves, but these were 10 trusted and capable individuals. Why do I say that? Because I find it hard to believe that a master would take someone that has no business experience and never done anything with money and say, hey, here's about three months' wages. Go do business until I come back and expect that when he comes back, he's going to have anything. This doesn't make any sense to me. So I believe it's safe for us to assume that these were trusted and capable individuals. Each one of them received the same amount of money. One mina, which was, again, about three months' wages, maybe a little more for a laborer. Each was given the explicit specific instruction to engage in business till I come back. So that's what we know about these slaves. So what happens next? When the master returns as king, he calls the 10 that he had given the money to so that he can hear a report of what had been done while he was away. We are given the report of three. Remember, there were 10 that were given one Mina each. We get the report of three. Why only 
three. Because this is not a story about specifics. This is not a specific story to say, well, here's what each ten did. This is a story to give an overall point. That's why there's only three. Otherwise, he would have given us the specifics of all ten of them. So what is the point? And here's what I hope we can see tonight. I believe the point of this parable is to align expectations. You know what it means to align when you have things that are not lined up and you bring them back in line? I believe the point of this parable, what Yeshua is getting at is trying to bring expectations into alignment. Because again, he's preempting the frustration of we're going to come to Jerusalem, you're all excited about this, and this is not what you think it's going to be. And he's trying to align the listener's expectations with God's expectations and with God's purposes. Remember what was said in the beginning of this parable in verse 11. Let me read it to you again. Chapter 19, verse 11. As they were listening to this, Yeshua went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was about to appear at once. He knew what they were thinking. And let me, let me make something clear. <laughs> the picture that they saw of him as the ruler and the reigning king was not the wrong picture. It was the wrong time. What they saw and what they were anticipating was true but it wasn't the right time. So Yeshua is aligning the expectations of his hearers. What are the expectations that were presented in this parable? Well, the expectation of the slaves, as we read it, the two faithful slaves expected that the master would actually return as king. Why do I say that? Because they actually did what he asked them to do. They engaged in business, and they produced more than what was given. If, if, if someone gives you money and you don't believe they're coming back, you go off and have fun. <laughs> right? So these men believed he was coming back, and they did what was asked of them. The third slave held the money in a handkerchief and explained to the master, for I was afraid of you, because you are a strict man, you take what you did not make and reap what you did not sow. Now, I think there's two perspectives we can look at this from. Number one, we could assume that the slave allowed his fear to keep him from doing even the simplest of options, which was just to deposit the money at the bank. So he was afraid. He was afraid of the master. From another perspective... It could be also understood that the slave purposely resisted the reaping of the return on the money because he didn't believe the master deserved it. In fact, he couldn't believe that the master wouldn't come back as king because those emissaries went to basically say, we don't want this guy as king, and so he's not going to come back as king anyway, so I'm just going to hold on to this, and when he comes back and he's not the king, I'll be proved right. Then I can say, here's your money. See? So we could look at this either way. And maybe, 
maybe he had another reason, but either way, he didn't meet the expectations of the master because he was giving clear instructions. So what was the expectation of the master? Well, we have to look at it before he departs. First, the expectation of the master while he was away was simply growth. I'm going to give you something, and while I'm away, I want you to trade it and utilize it, and when I come back, I expect it to be something more than what I gave you when I left. That was it. That was the expectation. He says to the third slave, I will judge you by your own words. I, if you heard my instruction, if you heard what I said, and you knew what my expectations were, why didn't you at least just put it in the bank? Do something with it. Now, I know this is hard. And I, I know for me, I, I get a sense of what I call pushback. <laughs> wait a minute. What, wait a minute. What's... And I, I believe that that sense of pushback here is because of what I call the burden of expectation. This burden of expectation can feel like a weight that's placed on us, and it can be something that creates anxiety or fear. I don't want to mess it up. I, I, don't, I don't like this feeling. I have to perform. I don't, I don't want to make a wrong choice. And it's this burden of expectation. But I want to put it into the context of this parable the burden of expectation that's presented in this parable is not unreasonable and it is not beyond the capabilities of the ones that were charged. The third one could have just gone to the bank, given him the money and been done and he would have been successful when the master returned. The master was not asking that for anything that was outside of his rights to request, he was not asking for something outside of the abilities and the capabilities of these people. It's as if Yeshua was saying, listen to this, listen to this. If an unrighteous king has the right to expect that the resources that have been given to capable people with clear instructions of expectations, if that unrighteous king should expect to reap a return on what he is entrusted, how much more does a righteous creator have the right to have such expectations of the things entrusted to his children? Because we know that God would not entrust us with something that's bigger than us. We know that when God entrusts us with something, it's for our benefit, for our good. So why wouldn't God have an expectation of growth? See, he's completely within his rights to have an expectation of growth from the things that are entrusted to his children. I want to just think about our eternal existence for a moment. Do we believe that Eternity is going to be some aimless existence with God where he has no expectation of us other than that we just enjoy ourselves? Is that what eternity's like? That God checks in, hey, you guys having fun? Okay, we're all good. That's our expectation of the eternal existence with God. God will be entrusting us with more based on how we care for the things that are given and entrusted to us 
in this life. I want to read to you a few more scriptures because there is a reward at stake. And this is what Yeshua is trying to get into the hearts and minds of his followers. There's, there's a point being made when he, the master says, give the one mina to the one who has 10. Because the people complain, they say, master, he already has 10. And the master replies, to everyone who has or to everyone who has been faithful, more will be given. Those who allow fear or other things, self-righteousness, whatever it may be to prevent them from doing just anything to grow, or those who reject the expectation of growth, what they have will be taken from them. I want to read to you from Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. John sees the future and he relates that he saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no one was found for them. and No place was found for them. And I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. Listen, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death and Hades gave up their, all their dead, and all were judged according to their works. So we have two things here. A book, the book of life, which will determine... Do we remain in God's presence for eternity or do we spend eternity away from God, cast out from his presence? But then there are books, it says, books that are open. What are in these books? It's the registry of our works. This is not just about what we do in this context of works. It's not just about what we did or what we will do. This is about what we do with the things entrusted to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 9, Paul says, For we are co God's co-workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and another builds on it, but let each consider carefully how he builds on it. For no one can lay any other foundation than that, that what was, is already laid, which is Yeshua the Messiah. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will show it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire itself will test each one's work what sort it is. If anyone's work is built on the foundation, anyone's work built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved as though through fire. So again, the book, the books, the books will be open. And he uses this picture of fire that what we have, or he, he first starts by saying to the people, you are God's field. You are God's building, built on the foundation, which is Yeshua. And he tells them, he, he tells them carefully consider how you build. This is, there's not a question here of should we build or should we not build? We should build. 
Paul knows what he's called to do. But he ends the passage with this principle that can be applied to every work that is entrusted to us. Things that were done, but were not the work of the master, were removed by fire. What is left after the fire has tested our works, listen to this, will be of greater value than its original state. So after our works, we stand before the Lord and we're, we're tested and, and the fire consumes whatever wasn't built correctly on the foundation and what's left. Whatever is left that was done in accordance to the faithfulness and utilizing the things that God has entrusted us will, will be left as a reward. But that thing will be more valuable than its original state. Why do I say that? Go back to our parable. Listen to this. Yeshua said, the slave that increased to 10 minus, the master said he was honored and given authority over 10 cities. The servant who increased his one minus to five, he was honored and given authority over five cities. What, what they had been given, which was originally a sum of money, and what they received in return for their faithfulness was the authority of cities. There's no correlation. <laughs> they were given a sum of money. But for their faithfulness, they're given authority over cities. Why is that? Why is that? Because the master came back as a king. Because when he was here, he was a master. But when he returns, he's the king. So what he can give you now is this, but what he can give you later is something so much more. Something so much greater. Now many times, I'm gonna move on here, many times this parable is used to, to talk about stewardship. And I, I want to just make a point real quick before we close. Because many times we, we hear the word stewardship and what we think about is the, the efficient use of things that we've been given. <laughs> How to utilize a resource well and manage it well. But in the context of this parable, in the context of this parable, Stewardship is actually about growth. How do you take what I've entrusted you with and grow it? Because the expectation of the master in this parable was growth. I want to just speak quickly to leaders, to married couples, to parents, to teachers, anyone who has influence and authority over people. Because when it comes to stewardship, the most precious thing that the Lord can put in our hands to steward is people. Our children, spouses, I encourage you to look at your relationship with one another as how can I help my spouse grow? You have been entrusted in my life. 
How can I help you grow to become the man or woman that God desires for you? Parents, you have been trusted with children. How can I take what God has so graciously entrusted, his most precious resource, the thing that Yeshua died for, and see it grow and become the thing that God desires it to be. Leaders, pastors, don't look at your people in your congregation as tools to be utilized. Look at them as people to be grown. Because this is what God desires. And in closing tonight, I want to look at the last verse in this parable, because this is the toughest one. In fact, I was thinking tonight during the parasha reading that the only thing more difficult probably than this verse would have been the Hosea verse that Nathalie read tonight for the parasha reading, so thankfully I'm not teaching you that. But the last verse, listen to this, verse 27 of this parable, and we'll close with this. But those hostile to me who didn't want me to reign over them, bring them here and execute them before me. What do we do with that? You see, it was the ex- we're talking about expectations. It was the expectation of the king that when he came back, his enemies would be dealt with in the context of this parable. It was his expectation that his enemies would be dealt with. Remember, the individuals who heard this parable as Yeshua was speaking it would have had no problem believing that a king would have demanded this. Because that's what kings did. They wouldn't have been shocked like, yeah, that's what a king does, of course. He's going to come back. The people that were against him, he's going to kill them all. That's what kings do. So they weren't shocked by this. But in our ears, in our time in history, we, we kind of expect, well, you know, the king should come back and say, hey, I know you don't like me, but can we all just kind of get along? <laughs> right? It's not the context of what was happening when this parable was being told. For me, it's as if Yeshua was saying to his audience, look, you have no problem expecting that this king would require that his enemies would be dealt with. Why would you not think that God, who is just, would not expect that those who willingly reject his kingdom and his Messiah would not be dealt with at judgment? Why would you think any different? He's righteous. He's just. Now, I don't believe, again, this is to speak into the character of God, that God longs for the day of judgment and God longs for judgment on his enemies. I don't believe that's the case. Why would he go through the trouble to send Yeshua to save every sinner that would believe if that was his intention, if that was his longing? It wouldn't be. We read in Revelation 20, it says that all the dead will stand before God in judgment. The point for me here is that God's grace, listen to this, God's grace, his invitation to come under the authority or under his authority and to become part of his family and his kingdom needs to be received before the king returns. God offers mercy. God offers grace. God offers relationship to humanity. 
to come back into fellowship with him. But there will be a day the king will return. And at that point, we will transition and judgment will begin. And Yeshua is speaking to his disciples and he's saying, you know that this is what is expected. And he spends a lot of time, if you go back earlier in Luke, he spends a lot of time encouraging his disciples. There was another scripture I was going to read, but I'm going to skip it for time tonight. He says, be alert, be ready, pay attention, don't be caught off guard, be faithful. Be ready because we don't know when he's coming. But he's speaking to the world and he's saying, look, I want you to come into relationship. I want you to come into fellowship with me, but you need to do it before the king returns. So that's our invitation tonight. And I want to just close with a word of prayer. Pray for us. I hope tonight that, again, this just illuminated this passage for you. You can see the intention and the heart of, of Yeshua as he's teaching these things and bringing these things to light. So let's, let's pray together. The worship team's going to come, and they're going to, Pastor Mike is going to close the service. But Yeshua, tonight, first, I just want to pray for those that have not accepted your invitation. Lord, to submit themselves to your authority or to your kingship. Father, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work in hearts and minds tonight, that they would hear this as a cry of, please hear me. I want you to come into fellowship and relationship with me. Please do it before the king returns. Holy Spirit, I pray for revelation, that you would impart the love of the Father that you the love that the Father has for each one of us as his children, Lord, that this is not an invitation to enter into an existence of oppression, but actually this is an invitation to enter into life as you intended it with fellowship through the Messiah, Yeshua. Father, tonight I pray for all of us that have committed ourselves to follow you, to walk in your ways. Lord, I, I pray that you would just continue by the Holy Spirit to align our expectations with your purposes. Holy Spirit, help us to be alert. Help us to be ready. And help us, Lord, to be continually growing and faithful, God. Faithful with the things that you have entrusted to us. And we pray this in the mighty and powerful name of Yeshua. Amen. Man, I encourage you tonight, if you have questions, if you have not committed your life to the Lord, if you've not entered into that fellowship, I encourage you to talk to one of the pastors. We're here to answer questions, to pray with you. I'm going to invite Pastor Mike to come up and close us tonight.